Welcome to the Health Design Podcast. I am your host, Moyes Jiwa. My guest on the podcast today is an African-American surgeon, son of Ghanaian migrants. From humble beginnings, he rose to become a cardiothoracic surgeon, saving thousands of lives. He remains part of the medical workforce to the worst pandemic we've witnessed in a generation or more. He's also very optimistic for the future of the US and believes with every fiber of his being that the country has a bright future, notwithstanding his race or the political situation. This is Dr. Hassan Teta. Hassan Teta, you're very welcome to the show. We're honored to be speaking with you today. Now, I understand that you are the son of West African migrants that moved to Brooklyn. Is that right? Yes, my parents were immigrant parents. They came from West Africa. My dad was from Ghana and Accra specifically in Ghana. And my mom was from Sierra Leone, uh, actually Freetown, Sierra Leone. So both West African immigrant parents, they immigrated to the U.S. in the sort of late 60s, early 70s. I was born in uh, a little town in New York called Brooklyn. So my dad would like to say I was made in the USA. (laughs) That's lovely. Now, Brooklyn I've been to Brooklyn, and Brooklyn is a very nice piece of real estate in New York. Was it like that when your parents were there? Not exactly. So the Brooklyn that I recall and remember, I go back to Brooklyn quite a bit because my wife and I still have family in New York. But the Brooklyn that I remember growing up in was a little bit different, Uh, certainly not as picturesque as, as some of the neighborhoods are now in Brooklyn. Uh, Brooklyn has become quite a desirable place, as you mentioned, and the real estate has, has certainly increased quite a bit. And that I remember growing up in was a bit different. It was a little bit uh, more rough around the edges, if you will. And it was uh, a place that I think certainly tested one's mettle. So I like to reflect back on my time in Brooklyn because I think it was formative. And, and certainly it gives me a great sense of gratitude that I was able to uh, navigate some of the challenges growing up, at least at that period of time in the sort of 80s and 90s in, in New York City and Brooklyn, and specific, uh, specifically to, you know, leave the area, go, go on to uh, college uh, outside of the city proper. Uh, I actually came back to Brooklyn for medical school, actually, which was interesting, and then uh, uh, joined the Navy after that and, and literally went around the world from that point on. So you weren't somebody from typically a, a very wealthy background. It sounds like you had a humble upbringing. And from there, you was it Harvard you went to medical school? I, I actually, I did do my some of my medical training at Harvard. But uh, yes, let me ask you your question specifically about the humble beginnings. I would certainly say that that would qualify uh, as a very apt description of, of my parents. Didn't really come from wealthy families and their respective West African countries, but, you know, definitely instilled and instituted and inculcated in me, uh, I think, a great work ethic. And certainly education was a paramount in terms of uh, priorities. And, you know, my mom not having a college degree and quite frankly, not having much high school background at all, um, really instilled in me this sense of education being a ticket to one's fulfillment of dreams, if you will. So that actually really I think, drove me. Uh, Certainly going to medical school. I went to medical school at Downstate. I I said I joined the Navy after that. I stayed in Brooklyn and New York for my general surgery training. Uh, I spent a few years as a surgeon. I went around the world on an aircraft carrier as a ship surgeon. And then when I returned back to the States, I went to Minnesota. I did my 
thoracic training there. So I, I learned how to become a heart and lung transplant surgeon. And then I was fortunate enough to have a, uh, a double opportunity at Harvard, both at the medical school and at the Kennedy School. So while pursuing a master's at, in public administration at the Kennedy School, I was also working as a physician uh, in an advanced cardiac surgery fellowship at the Brigham and Women's Hospital, a Harvard Medical School affiliate. So you, sir, are living the American dream. You came from this humble background and you worked hard and you've uh, accomplished a great deal in those years. Well, I, I think that's, yeah, it definitely characterizes it, uh, you know, uh, and, and wraps it up in a bow and makes it seem like it was, it was very easy. But I can assure you there was quite a bit of failure and tumult and, you know, uh, serendipity, divine intervention on many occasions. And quite frankly, I think a lot of luck. Uh, you know, I certainly recall growing up in New York with uh, friends of mine that were, you know, certainly smarter than me from an academic standpoint, uh, perhaps even a bit more intuitive than I was. But, you know, they, for whatever reason, succumbed to some of the uh, challenges that I aforementioned in, in New York. And, and it was very hard growing up in, in the city at that time to sort of navigate some of those things, getting, you know, in trouble with the law or, you know, worse. And, and certainly New York, at least at that time, was a pretty dangerous place, you know, just, uh, uh, you know, much different than it, than it is right now. Uh, so, yes, it, very easy to succinctly say, oh, you lived the American dream and you know, you were able to achieve so much. And, and I certainly don't discount any of that, but I do also attribute that to a great amount of luck, serendipity, certainly uh, divine intervention in many occasions, and the help, support, mentorship, and uh, assistance of, of so many people that are, you know, too many to name. Yes, and I wasn't meaning to make it sound like this was simple or easy or that it was anything less than the struggle that it has been. What I'm trying to get at really is to understand what it is that makes you the heart surgeon that will work 12, 13, 14 hour days and still feel that he loves what he does. That is not a common story in medicine, as you know. We are currently in the middle of probably the worst public health crisis that we've faced as a generation. And Absolutely. many of our colleagues feel that they are in a combat zone particularly in places like New York, from what I hear, they feel they're working all those hours and the whole issue of burnout comes to the fore. So I'm trying to explore what it is that makes you what you are in order for us to understand what might help those people in these circumstances. Right. You know, no, that, that's a very excellent point. I will characterize, you know, the journey, if you will, as, as one of, of, like I said, all of those things, luck and, and, and sort of serendipity, et cetera. But, you know, ultimately, it can all be distilled down to one word, and that word is gratitude. And if you think about, like you said, the humble beginnings, my parents coming from another country, uh, getting here, their son becoming a heart and lung transplant surgeon, I mean, that is statistically, you know, impossible. It is, it is if you were to you know, line up 100 people like me with that kind of similar background and ask how many of them would, would be able to you know, many years later, sit here with you and your audience and, and share with them that, yeah, this is what I do for a living. You wouldn't have that many people at, at your at your call. You wouldn't have anyone on the line, quite frankly. So it's because of that and this enormous sense of gratitude that I have for having this opportunity is really what I have. I have an opportunity to do work that is meaningful, that's important, that's impactful, 
that really absolutely makes a difference in people's lives. And I never, ever, on any occasion or at any time or any moment in my career have ever taken that for granted. I quite frankly don't believe I have the luxury to be burnt out because the fact that I'm here talking to you as a heart and lung transplant surgeon, understanding what it took to get here for me, and more, more importantly, all of the people that sacrificed so much for me to be able to, to be here, to me, it doesn't really give me, I think, a sense of, of entitlement and certainly not uh, a perspective that warrants you know, being burnt out. I think about my mom. So let me just talk about her for a moment. My mom works 16 hours almost every day. And, and she didn't have the job that I had. I mean, she was working as a nurse's aide. And anyone that works in a hospital knows what kind of hard work that is. I mean, that's cleaning bedpans. That's, that's cleaning patients. That's turning patients, changing sheets, you know, picking food off the floor. At, at one, in one moment, you're a part housekeeper and, and nurse attendant. In another point, you're helping people, you know, eat. And, 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 at, the time, and at the same time, you're, you're quite frankly taking quite a bit of the brunt from the rest of the healthcare system because you're sort of at the, the, the low part of the totem pole. And she did that without complaint and, and with, uh, you know, I would say alacrity for 16 hours a day, for almost seven days a week, for many, many years, because she knew that it was because of her sacrifice she was able to afford to send me to, you know, private school and try and give me all the things that I needed, you know, to be successful. So in that regard, I think about burnout and I, and I, and I'm not minimizing that there's burnout because the burnout comes from so many, you know, factors and stresses. And, and I, yeah, sure. I've, I've experienced that on occasion, but more importantly, I have the perspective of thinking back to my mom and, and others like her, so many others like her, that are in jobs and in and in situations that are far worse than mine. And then again, that, that word gratitude surfaces. So yeah, my 16-hour days were nothing like the kind of 16-hour days she had. I mean, my 16-hour days, you know, quite frankly, in comparison, are much more pleasurable because what am I doing? I'm operating, I'm doing things that I love to do. Yes, there are stresses, there's there are challenges, but in every one of those, there's also a tremendous reward. And I think. I think often about this burnout issue, and I've addressed it in many different ways. I, you know, I, I, I wrote books about it. I've written papers about it. I, I talk about it. And I think that it really is necessary, I think, for, for individuals that do face burnout to develop a different perspective for their circumstance. And, and that's not easy to do. I'm certainly not discounting that because I will tell you that burnout and all of the stress and, and the challenges that we face in modern healthcare right now is, is very consequential. I mean, a number of my colleagues have committed suicide. They're depressed. They're, they're using substances. They're not at their peak. And, and that is uh, you know, multifactorial in terms of why that happens. But I, I also believe that I've seen people emerge from that you know, sort of disposition with a, with a different outlook once they have a, a sort of opportunity, if you will, to look at their perspective in a different way or look at their circumstance in a different way. And that's some of the things that I try and do in my work when I am addressing directly the, this aspect and this, this issue and challenge of burnout. So if you're talking to medical students and mm-hmm. you hear them mention this word burnout and mm. they say, well, Dr. Teta, what you're telling us is my fault. I, I am not uh, as committed to my work as you are, and therefore I'm going to suffer the consequences. That isn't what you're saying, is it? No, not at all. Not, not saying that at all. What I'm suggesting is, you know, many of us, I think, 
you know, and this is true for nurses, allied health professionals, pretty much anyone going into healthcare or or the business of of helping others in in some capacity, go into it for very altruistic reasons. I think, you know, certainly if you think of the average intellect of the medical student, if they really wanted to make a lot of money, they're going into the wrong business if they go into medicine. So there, there's something else about that. And sometimes it's necessary for us to sort of remember and recall why it is that we went into this you know, great profession in the first place. And that's easy to get lost you know, on a daily basis, especially with the tumult of you know, electronic health records and, and <laughs> spending all your time inputting information and, and, and data that no one else will probably look at except for the bill collectors at the hospital, you know, and not having the opportunity to spend the time with your patients. All of those things contribute to this syndrome, if you will, of burnout. I will say that one of the other things, in addition to, you know, the background that I shared with you that has also, and I think always sort of elevated me to think about things in a different way is I had the unfortunate, 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 or maybe fortunate experience of being very sick when I was undergrad. Um, I actually suffered a near-death experience. Uh, I was my junior year of college and I was, uh, just returning back from an early interview at Johns Hopkins for medical school, actually. And uh, about a week later, uh, I suffered tremendous uh, fever and chills and headache and neck pain. And I was diagnosed with a bacterial meningitis. And I was uh, rushed to the hospital. And, and fortunately, they, they were able to save me. But I spent a few weeks in the hospital. And this was well before I even graduated from undergrad. So I wasn't a medical student. I wasn't even a doctor at that point. But that experience of being a patient and understanding and, and feeling how helpless I was and how uncertain I was about my fate, that to me also engenders this great sense of purpose, if you will, for, for, for overcoming some of the burnout challenges that we face. Because at the end of the day, no matter all of the stresses and the challenges that we're facing as healthcare providers, we typically uh, have in front of us and before us someone that's looking for our help and our assistance. And that patient on the other side is absolutely better served if you're not burnt out. You know, they're they're absolutely better served if you're passionate about your work, if you're if you're excited about your work, if you're absolutely, you know, just driven and dedicated to it. But there is also the reality that all of these other external forces are playing on your psyche to prevent you from having that kind of passion. Now, for me, one of the things that that works for me is I put myself in the patient's shoes and I think to myself, you know, what kind of doctor do I want on the other end of this? Do I want a stressed out individual? No, not really. Um, If I'm in that vulnerable position as I was when I was undergrad, scared, uncertain, uh, terrified about what was going to happen, unsure what my diagnosis meant, you know, and and then helpless at the same time, I would want to make sure that whoever was taking care of me was really, really interested in taking care of me, really, really would would do their best. And so I try and and whenever I get those feelings of like, oh, I got to deal with that chart. Oh, I got to deal with this meeting. Oh, I got to deal with that administrator. You know, all of these things that like weigh on us. Oh, they haven't, they haven't paid me for my reimbursement. You know, I it's just all of these things. I start to begin again and, 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 you know, reflect back on how it was when I was a patient. And I think to myself, well, the patient, they're not responsible for all of these things. What they want is someone who's caring on the other side to give them their best. And I'm going to try my best to do that so that if I'm ever, God forbid, in that situation again, 
there'll be someone on the other side that really, you know, wants to care for me. You're about to go into another case. How many cases have you now done? Many, hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands of, of, of cases for, you know, certainly encounters, that's for sure. Um, but in my work of transplant surgery right now, we've done, we've actually a colleague of mine in my group, we've done over 1,200 uh, heart and lung transplant cases. That's a lot of cases if you think about sort of the lower volume of, of, of these cases. But over the course of my career, I've been fortunate to be involved in many, many cases during my general surgery time, certainly throughout training, uh, during my fellowship, since I've been in practice. I've been in practice now as an attending, sort of full-fledged not a trainee anymore for over uh, 15 years now. So it's been, uh, it's been quite, a, quite a run. <laughs> it, it is. And, I, and the reason I asked the question was, how long more do you think you can keep this up? Oh, well, I'd like to keep going for another couple decades if possible. You know, it's something that I, I, I've, I've talked about. In fact, I had this uh, unique opportunity. I say unique because I think I'm, yeah, I like to think of myself as still relatively young. I, I, I uh, graduated medical school in 98 uh, and so, you know, had my fellowship and all my training, et cetera. But I was invited to my medical school alma mater to be the white coat ceremony speaker. And so for those of you in the audience that may not know what that is about, the white coat ceremony is, is something that many medical schools um, have as sort of a rite of passage for first year medical students. So this is right as you're entering medical school before you even start your official classes, there's a bit of a ceremony where the medical students, you know, sort of newly minted uh, medical students, uh, get an opportunity to, to don their white coat. It's the short white coat, you know, that designates them as a medical student. But they typically have a ceremony and they have speakers. And, and I was selected to be the speaker to my alma mater. Now, I was thoroughly flattered and, and I was so overwhelmed with, uh, with this great honor that I really wanted to be as inspiring as possible for these these students because I, I I saw this as an opportunity for me to before they get jaded with with the work and the, and the culture that is is sometimes brutal in, in training and in medical school to share with them this glint of hope and and sort of something aspirational and inspirational uh, and uh, I shared with them a story about Hippocrates. Uh, you know, so one of the, the folks that's considered a father of medicine. And, and in the story, it really goes back to sort of this ancient tradition of what it is to be a healer, one that without, without the MRI and the CT scan and, and all of these fancy things that we have, but just the principle one-on-one human-to-human interaction of like understanding what it is that makes this patient tick, what it is that is their challenge, what it is that is their problem, and then thinking about how it is you can use your bag of tools to help. And I tried to convey it in such a way that it was entertaining and, and that it was memorable. And actually, that became the genesis for uh, this body of work that I've been working on for almost uh, 10 years now. And it's, uh, it's called The Art of Human Care. And I wrote a book about it, and I have several others in the, in the, in the pipe. And, and partly because I received such tremendous feedback from that, positive feedback from the students, from the faculty, from parents, that it made me realize that there was a way for me to, if there was a way for me to share this message with, with more people, it, it would in fact sort of be a force multiplied, to use a term in the military, where 
here it was in this one opportunity, I had this opportunity to talk to 200 medical students. But if I put it in a book or in a form or a format, whether it be video or, or something like this, and, you know, in terms of a podcast that could reach many more people, then in that way, I'm actually taking my work of helping others and, and using and leveraging the work that others do, hopefully inspired by some of the, the, the you know, sort of the perspectives and the stories that I'm sharing with them to be even better at their work and to be even better doctors and healers in their own regard. So that, that has been a really exciting and, and the passionate project that I have, uh, have been working on for, for a few years now. How do you balance all these things? You've got, on the one hand, your huge job as a cardiothoracic surgeon, and then on the other hand, these other things that you're contributing that are making a huge difference across the world. How do you balance it? What's, what a, what's a day like for Hassan Teta? Right. Well, no day is, is, has been and, and typically is you know, routine or the same, which adds some of the spice in life, if, if you will. I, at least for me, it does. I like that. I like the uncertainty. I like the excitement of not knowing what's going to happen. And, and so in transplant surgery in particular, there's a lot of unpredictability in, in, in just inherently in the work because you never know when a donor is going to be available and you don't know where you're going to be going off to, to have to go recover a lung or a heart and bring it back to the other recipient that's waiting. But to answer your question, like what keeps me going and how do, how do I do all these things? Well, I would say I attribute that to a number of things. One of the things that I attribute it to is this daily exposure uh, to the fragility of life. Many people, I would argue, seem to believe that they have all the time in the world. <laughs> you know, you, you, they sit back and they say, oh, you know, I'll get to whatever it is that's going to bring me closer to my dream or my goal tomorrow or next week or when winter comes or when summer comes or next year I'll get to it or maybe when the kids graduate from school or when my wife gets another job or something like that. And well, that's great. I mean, to have that luxury of, of time. But I, I believe, and, and because I'm reminded of it on such a daily basis, that we don't have a lot of time in life. And I think it's that realization, that understanding, that perspective that I have through my work in transplant that gives me this sense of urgency with everything. So I feel, even though you may outline and delineate all of these things that I, I've so-called accomplished in air quotes, I feel like, oh, no, there's so much more I want to do. And I don't know if I'm going to have a lot of time because this case that I'm going to go do tonight, it's going to be some tragedy. It's going to be a young person, typically, that became uh, subject to some tragedy, whether it was a car accident or, or a drug overdose or a suicide or some just cataclysmic, unexpected accident that now puts them in a situation where they're brain dead. And now they are now an organ donor. And many of my patients that become donors, they leave their homes in the morning thinking like everything's going to be a, like you said, typical, so-called typical day. And absolutely everything goes wrong. So uh, that understanding and that appreciation of, of how fragile life is, I think really has instilled and always inculcated in me this sense of urgency. And that notwithstanding was the sort of the experience I had way back in undergrad. Like I felt like the fact that I survived that, there must be a reason why I'm still alive. And because of that, I want to make sure that I live every day to its fullest and make sure that I'm, I'm moving forward with the goals that I put in place, but also working hard to 
to use this opportunity that I have to help others to its fullest and maximal effect. Hassan, here you are, the son of West African immigrants, saving lives. Black, white, it doesn't matter, saving lives. Given what's happening in the U.S. at the moment, and uh, I'm reflecting back what we're seeing from afar, Mm -hmm. what do you think the future holds for your part of the world? That's a really good question. I would characterize what I'm going to say and frame it in in this context. I am, and those that are friends of mine and and my family members, and especially my immediate family, know this this, very well about me. I am what I would call the eternal optimist. If you look back again on on what I shared with you in terms of my upbringing and, and where I am today, it, it, if I wasn't an optimistic person, I wouldn't be here because, quite frankly, if I just kind of looked at the reality of my circumstance at any point in my life, I'd say, well, you know, this is my station. I, I just better, you know, park here and just be happy and content with that. So having said that, that's going to color what I say. I, I do believe that there are definitely challenges. And that's been manifest in the civil unrest that we're experiencing. That's been manifest in the in the things that you are all seeing across the globe with protest and, and the anger and the discontent. And it's all warranted, especially if you if you were to peel back each of these individual stories and, and try and characterize why one is is full of this rage and this discontent. In America in particular, we have a a, a very well-known history of uh, of differences in terms of how one gets treated because of their color and their race and their and their status. I certainly have experienced that throughout my life. I continue to experience it even as a physician. Doesn't matter. I'll still get pulled over and and question why that happens, or I'll be you know referred to in the hospital for all kinds of other things in terms of other professions or work other than the doctor or the surgeon. And I've taken all of those in in stride. However, I also recognize this fact, and and this is why I'm I'm going to end with with sort of answering your question in this way. As bad as things are right now, they were at another time, not too long ago, far worse, far, far worse for so many of us. So yes, it is bad, but you know what? It could be worse, and it was worse. It was a lot worse. And in fact, the time and the period that we're living in right now one should be very encouraged by that because now the fight and the plight and the realization and, and more importantly, this rallying and, and this sort of coalescing of forces to help address the injustice is being taken up by others other than just African-Americans, other than just you know people that are brown or, or poor. It's being taken up by people that are the mainstream, people that are of affluence, people that are of wealth people that are white. And so if you think about that and and you kind of characterize what's happening in in businesses and in industry, they're making efforts to to sort of address and and take care of some wrongs or some ills. I mean, I think that's all very encouraging. And the other thing that we should not lose sight of is this. If you think about where the, the folks that have sacrificed over the years, and certainly since the very beginning of this of this nation, they they did all of that so that we could have the opportunity to protest and to and to and to raise the flag and say, "Hey, this is wrong. This is not right." And the very fact that we're able to do that and then have the whole world stage come to the table and also appreciate how bad it is, I think, is is a universal win. 
we still have a long way to go, but I think we've come, you know, we've come very, very far. And if you think about the perspective of uh, and the arc of the history of, of the United States, I think that this is this is actually a good thing, and it's something that I think is going to continue to evolve. So I'm very encouraged. And then one last thing I, I should I should say because you mentioned watching from afar or thinking about what the global in the global community is, is thinking about America. I, one of the things that has been a great uh, benefit in my life and, and something that I think has been a, a rewarding experience for me is the ability to travel. And because of the military and because of just an, uh, an affinity for, for traveling, I'm, I'm proud to say I've been to over 50 countries in my lifetime. And that uh, has opened my aperture for what the rest of the world is enduring and facing. So here in America, even in, in some of our most uh, sort of depressed areas and, and some of the most challenging neighborhoods, the, the, the life that one lives in that circumstance is still far better than many places in the entire world, by far. It's almost comparatively, you could say that someone who's living in, in some of the poorer sections in America is still relatively much, much well off, much more well off than they are in, if they were to be living in another country somewhere. Uh, and that that has never been lost on me. So I also take that uh, perspective and think to myself, yes, we have challenges here, but in, in many ways, we have it very good as well. Hassan, where can people find you? Do you have a website? Yes, I do. So uh, the website is pretty easy. It's drteta.com and, and doctor is spelled out D-O-C-T-O-R. And then my last name, which is T-E-T-T-E-H.com. That's the same moniker for Twitter, Dr. Teta at, you know, at Dr. Teta for Twitter and Facebook is also uh, Dr. Teta. So the website is a good place to, to find me. Um, I'm frequently posting on LinkedIn and on Twitter and, and Dr. Teta. Fortunately, my name is a bit unusual. So there are not too many of us, too many of us with Hassan Teta running around. Uh, so I, I, I'm pretty searchable and, and easy to find uh, because of my peculiar name. <laughs> Thank you very much. Hassan Teta, it's been an honor speaking with you today. I'll leave you to your work of saving yet another life. You talked about doing this for another two decades. I have no doubts that you will do that. And I have no doubts that the tumult that we're seeing in your country will settle. And there are many like you in America. And I think that is what makes the country great. Oh, well, thank you, Moez. And your, your audience given me the opportunity to share these stories with them from, from across the pond here is, is truly an honor as well. So I, I, I reciprocate your gratitude. Thank you so much for the opportunity. The Journal of Health Design. Better health by design. Visit us at thejournalofhealthdesign.com. <laughs>